pray together for a moment. Dear God, thank you for your presence and for a space where we can come together to be a little bit more conscious of it. Would you lift the words from these passages up and out? Would they move in us? Amen. So on New Year's Day, some of you weren't here. Actually, probably about half of you weren't here. We won't talk about why that is. I have guesses. But New Year's Day, I introduced our annual scripture from John 3, sorry, John 4, verses 13 to 14. And as the passage that will guide our congregation throughout this calendar year. In it, Jesus offers an invitation to drink, not of earthly water, but of the water that he will give. A water that in its drinker will become a spring gushing up into eternal life. And as I introduced that passage, I asked you, what is it that we might be thirsty for? That as Todd and I had met earlier that week, we viewed East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church as a thirsty congregation. And then just a little bit later that month, many of us gathered in homes and we sat around tables and we reflected together over a meal. What is it that we're thirsty for? And these are just some of the things that came out of those conversations. We are thirsty for meaningful connection and authentic relationship in this place. That we're thirsty to know God and to explore divine mystery. We're thirsty to be faithful. Two words, full of faith. You said that we were thirsty for unity, real unity. One of you mentioned it like this, that we want to be a congregation where people have a seat at the table, not just in the pew. Some of you are thirsty for rest. Some of you are thirsty to recover a thirst from bygone days. We want to be thirsty, but we don't know if we are. Right? Some of us are thirsty to share the living water through our care and our love and our presence to one another and to the world through the sharing of our resources. Some of us are thirsty for healing, relationally, spiritually, physically. Some of us said that we were thirsty for wisdom, to discover some novelty in the daily grind. 
Some of us are thirsty to know how to approach scripture. We want to want to read it. Some of us are thirsty for it. We want it. We want to know how to dive deeper. And as I was sitting with some of these reflections that came out of these nucleus little conversations, I couldn't help but think what a beautiful thirst that sits among us as a congregation. And I was also struck by how differently that thirst is manifesting itself in each and every one of us. You know, for some of us, it looks like fervent excitement and a hunger. For some of us, it looks like weariness from the monotony of life. For some of us, it looks like utter exhaustion, <laughs> right? And so when we're introduced this morning in John 3 to Nicodemus, we read this, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus under the cloak of night. And the time here that's listed isn't a coincidence, right? It's not... It's not just out of convenience or like Jesus was just really busy and that was the only time they could meet. He comes to Jesus under the cloak of night on purpose. Because Jesus has been doing these signs and wonders throughout the land and Nicodemus has been seeing it. And he has been causing a stir And it's interesting how in this story, John places it right after Jesus has gone into the temple, gotten really mad, whipped people out of there, chased out the animals, chased out the money lenders, and started flipping the tables. So it's not a coincidence that a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night. He doesn't necessarily want to be seen with Jesus at this moment. So under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and there are many who would interpret this to show that maybe Nicodemus wasn't really all in, or maybe Nicodemus was a little bit dubious. He had, he had some ulterior motives for this nighttime meeting. But you know what I think? I think that Nicodemus was thirsty shaken up by what he's seeing and this thirst manifests itself in Nicodemus as a cautious curiosity. And I think for some of us, that is what's drawing us here together. It's a cautious curiosity. And we're given this mystical fly-on-the-wall experience of this dialogue that happens between Jesus and Nicodemus. And there are a couple things that we should know as we kind of eavesdrop on their conversation. And the first is that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he isn't just coming of his own accord. That Nicodemus is coming as a representative of believers in Jerusalem who are also living out thirst via cautious curiosity. And so when he comes to Jesus, 
we see that he's, he says it right in the beginning. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He's representing a people here. And Jesus is going to respond to his curiosity to a collective body. So this term when Jesus says, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. He's saying, you people of Jerusalem must be born again. And the second thing to note is that before Nicodemus even walks in the door, Jesus has his number. And he has the number on the people of Jerusalem. Just before the change in chapter, we read in John 2, that when Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. So Jesus is sensing this collective heart of the people. And he senses that are, there are many whose motives aren't necessarily deep. They're not interested necessarily in the kingdom, but they are interested in miracles. And so when Nicodemus comes saying all the right things to Jesus, right? He comes, he says, Rabbi, right? He's acknowledging Jesus as an authoritative figure. He comes to him, he says that Jesus is a teacher from God, right? He tells him that it's clear that God is with them. No one could do what you're doing without the presence of God, he tells Jesus. And Nicodemus is articulating what would seem like a really clear faith statement here. And Jesus basically tells Nicodemus, you think you see, but you don't see. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anothen. You heard me right. The Greek word there is anothen. It means at once to be born again and to be born from above. So when you read different translations of the Bible, you're going to read different words there. But really, this Greek word means them both at the same time, that we are to be born again and from above. Now, it's really easy to judge Nicodemus' response here. He came back at him saying, you know, how can anyone be born after having grown old. You know, can someone enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born again? And I don't know about you, but like I just imagine Jesus being like, oh, <laughs> right? But you know, I don't have a lot of room to talk here. And I'm not sure how much room we all have to talk here about understanding what it is that Jesus is describing in this passage. Because just like Nicodemus, we all are so shaped by the spiritual and religious social settings that we inhabit. We can't get away from it. So the other day, 
This was a couple weeks ago. I am sitting in my office next door, and I think I might have been working on a sermon. So I was like really deep in concentration. And there's a knock at the door. And Todd was busy, and Shannon was busy, so I kind of pull myself away from my work. And I go to answer the door, and it's a gentleman who is a delivery man. And he's here delivering something for someone who lives in one of the upstairs apartments. So I said, oh, you know, no problem. Actually, the door is right around the side here, so, um, so you can go knock there. And he looks me up and down. He's like, wait, this isn't the apartment. I said, oh, no, these are, these are the offices for the church next door. And then he looks me up and down again, quizzically. And he's like, you saved? <laughs> and I kind of, I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he goes, but are you born again? And I said, yeah. And he paused. And he looked me up and down again. And he goes, but do you know what that means? And at this point, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what this man is asking me about. And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he asked me my name. And at this point, I think, like, maybe he just needed a particular interaction that I wasn't giving him. And so he asked me my name. And I was standing at the door. And I have to confess, I've been really, like, weirded out by the fact that my name is displayed at different places in the church or on the church. It's a very weird feeling to come to church one day and see your name on a sign there. And so that has made me really uncomfortable, but I have to confess to you that in this moment, I was kind of devilishly satisfied. And so I say to him, Oh, my name is Elisa. I'm one of the pastors of the church next door. And he goes, oh, and he looks really embarrassed. And we kind of like end the conversation quickly. And he leaves. And I feel a little bit guilty sending him up to the next apartment around the corner. And, you know, when he asked me, but do you know what it means to be born again? I think I know what he thought it meant to be born again. I think he, like most who have been raised in white American Protestant church, believe that to be born again means to experience some kind of before and after moment, some kind of meaningful encounter where one changes their relationship to Jesus, asks Jesus to be part of their life in such a way that they are assured safe passage to heaven. It's a really common message within our faith context. And in fact, this before and after moment 
we can get really caught up on it, can't we? For some of us, we have it, and we hearken back to it all the time. And Tom Wright talks about this. He says, it's like as if we, we would hang our birth certificate up on the wall, and every time someone visits us, we just, you know, we tell them the story. And that, that birth certificate being kind of the most important thing in our lives, and not to say that it's not important that you're born, but it would be a strange encounter if someone did that every time you talk to them. For others of us, maybe we don't feel a before and after moment. I don't know, is anyone else in the room in that situation? Like, I, you know, growing up in the church was also, you know, often encountering these moments where we were invited to share our testimony. And so often I would hear people say, well, I don't, I don't really have a testimony. Because there wasn't this one moment that was like a traumatic change in their lives. And you know, I think about that with Nicodemus, like Nicodemus probably would have one of the most boring testimonies you've ever heard. Well, I was raised in a Jewish home and I, I grew up at the temple, right? Like it would have been that typical typical testimony. I think a lot of times when we hear this term born again, we think automatically of a transactional moment where I give myself to God and God gives me something back. And it makes sense because it is the way our society works. And it is the way that Nicodemus' society works. You you go to the temple, you make your sacrifice, you give something to God, God gives you something back, atonement, protection. But I found myself this day walking back to my office and wondering if either this man or I really knew what it means to be born again. Because what Jesus goes on to describe in this passage It's extraordinary. So Jesus is telling him that a rebirth must take place in Jerusalem, a collective renewal of life. And simultaneously, he is saying that this rebirth stems from something other than the people of Jerusalem have the capacity to fathom. A spirit born of spirit. And, you know, I just need to draw your attention to our bulletin cover because I think Winona has captured this really beautifully for us. It's a mystical birth igniting in us from the inside out. And like the wind, we don't know where it comes from or where it is going. In fact, Nicodemus, a man who has devoted his entire life to the exploration of divine mystery, finds himself absolutely baffled by this conversation. And so while some argue that Nicodemus and the people of Jerusalem along with him are just being willingly obtuse or have a lack of imagination, this is really a pattern we see over and over throughout the Gospels, right? 
we see Jesus encountering people. He's talking to them. He shares some kind of divine, mystical information, and they have no idea what they're supposed to do with it. We are regularly confounded by the words of Jesus. And I wonder if it's not that everyone is obtuse, but rather that Jesus is concerned with the kind of kingdom that most of us just simply do not have the eyes to see. One where the presence of God moves among us collectively like an untamed wind, opening our eyes to the people we haven't seen noticing the opportunities we haven't even thought to explore. Noticing the bondage that has us tethered to to things, to wealth, to our own instant gratification, to, to power structures that are bound up in the exploitation of others. And these are things that you cannot see if someone hasn't given you new eyes. How many of us miss this on a daily basis? And so towards the end of this conversation that's happening, we can really feel the ache in Jesus for Jerusalem to see. In verse 10, he says, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not receive our testimony. I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And doesn't it just seem like Jesus is struggling here? Like He knows the capacity of the people and they just aren't getting it. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of these situations where you're trying to explain something to someone and they are just not following what you're saying. (laughs) And how frustrating it is that Jesus is trying to describe something in human language, something that is beyond words, something that will ignite our humanity into our fullest, most broad meaning. But we don't have the context for it. He tells us that. No one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven. How am I supposed to tell you about heavenly things? None of you have been there except me. And then he shifts the conversation. And I think part of this frustration is that he's about to share the central themes of the gospel. And I think he's worried that we will miss it. He says, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is recalling here a story from the Hebrew Scriptures in order to foreshadow a radical solidarity that is about to unfold in his life. During their wanderings in the wilderness, the Israelites were grumbling to Moses and God got annoyed with it and he punished them with poisonous stakes. That's a whole nother mysterious story that we don't understand. But God gives Moses a remedy. He tells Moses to cast 
a snake in bronze and to attach it to a pole and to hold that pole up before all of the Israelites. And all they have to do is just look at it and they're going to be healed. And Jesus is telling the people of Jerusalem that this kingdom message that he is proclaiming throughout the land will ultimately lead to his own body being lifted up on a cross before all people not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And sitting with these curious things, I can't help but find a tremendous hope in Nicodemus. Three years after this cautious nighttime meeting with Jesus, it will be this thirsty Pharisee who we find bringing myrrh and aloe into a garden tomb after Jesus has been executed. And tenderly, Nicodemus will prepare Jesus' body for burial. And I wonder if perhaps the courage to do that could have just maybe been ignited by a wild and mystical wind seeming to come out of nowhere. Amen.